An episode like this is very hard for me to properly talk about, so I'm going to do my best here, guys. But uh, i got to be honest with you, I love this episode. It has a couple of flaws here and there, just little nitpicks and issues. But nevertheless, this is a really good episode. This is among my favorite episodes in TNG and across Star Trek in general. And a lot of that is on the strength of the script, which is very tightly written with only a couple holes in it. And on the performance of James Sloyan, as well as Andreas Katsoulas, as well as Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner. Basically, all of those actors just carry this one to success. Believe it or not, this was basically Ronald D. Moore's second episode. Although, he shouldn't get all credit for this, and he himself has admitted this, because he put forth the basic idea. Cuban Missile Crisis in TNG. Funnily enough, we've already had a Cold War episode just a few episodes ago. In fact, this wasn't intended, but because of how things ended up lining up, they actually wanted to push this anyways because they had just done The Enemy, which ended up working out really well and kind of furthered the idea of the Romulans as the recurring undercurrent villains of TNG, even though they only really show up in like five episodes, maybe like six or so. I, I don't remember off the top of my head. It is not a lot. Nevertheless, this kind of stuff kind of showcases that background element of the political situation right now. There was one pretty big issue, though, because originally the episode was supposed to start on Sherlock. Uh, I keep wanting to say James for some reason. I don't know why. James Sherlock? No. Uh, Sherlock Holmes. There we go. Sherlock Holmes. It was supposed to be a, a recurrence of that theme that was going on with Data. And then they had legal issues. I've actually already talked about those legal issues, and we'll bring them up again. But this is just another time when that particular problem was occurring. And so it's like, okay, what are we going to do about this? Well, we're going to not do the episode like that. And they only had two days before filming to try and fix this. So out of, the, out of nowhere, some sources disagree on where this came from. But one way or another, Henry V was actually, be more specific, Shakespeare was suggested, and they were going to use the episode, The Defector, or episode, wow, script. And then Picard, excuse me, Patrick Stewart, suggested Henry V, and ah, it just lined up correctly. They added a few different lines, changed a few different things, and bam, we do a Henry V scene. Here's the thing. Patrick Stewart is obviously a Shakespearean actor. Duh, right? And he obviously really likes Shakespeare. Again, duh. And, okay, I'm with it. What... What I don't understand is why Captain Picard is not playing the one soldier in the scene. Here's the thing. For those of you not aware of what I'm talking about, they have a scene where Data, playing Henry V, comes in and talks to two of his soldiers. One of which was played by a gentleman whom I don't recognize, but does a good job of the role. And the other's played by Patrick Stewart. Right next to Picard over there, who is played by Patrick Stewart. <laughs> what? I suppose this sounds like a weird thing to complain about, but it's just jarring in a weird sort of way to have Stuart there twice playing two completely separate roles for what amounts to no reason. That's so clearly and obviously Patrick Stewart under that makeup, and despite his accent. And it's not like he doesn't do a good job with the role. Why not just have Picard do that role as part of his trying to, to help Data with this whole thing? Let's, you know, Picard is obviously pro-Shakespeare. He has a line which is something along the lines of, no better way to embrace humanity than by studying Shakespeare, which I disagree with, by the way. But then again, I was kind of an outlier back in theater classes and, and theater, uh, 
you know, school stuff uh, and, and actually doing plays because I don't think Shakespeare's that great. <laughs> but regardless of that, given the fact that Picard, the character, is obviously pro-Shakespeare, I mean, this isn't the, even the first time this has come up, why not have him just playing the character? It just seems like such a weird, unnecessary thing and added some unnecessary additional uh, editing that had to be done for the scene. And it's just little stuff like that. Which bothers me on this episode. I do want to talk about one thing before we really get into the meat of the episode, though. It's kind of a cool idea using the holodeck like this, right? Like, there's always the joke, you know, what, what would you do on a holodeck? Oh, well, sex, right? Okay, yeah, that's great. Go have sex on a holodeck. But what about the other more interesting things you could do on a holodeck? Like, practice acting. <laughs> Just to use an example. Like, okay, Surely everyone out there, at least to some extent or another, can come to me and say there's something you would like to pursue as a hobby that the holodeck would just enable you to do, right? If you don't understand what I mean, let me use a slight variation of an analogy here. Uh, I used to be really into video games. I'm not anymore. I, I quit video games years ago. I'm sorry. I know some people can't understand my sarcasm. I've been playing video games since I was three. And I was very lucky, and I mean that with total sincerity. I was fortunate because my parents were financially stable enough to support that hobby, in addition to being the kind of people who wanted to encourage me into th things that were interesting to me. Video games were not my only hobby as I was growing up, but they were the most expensive one. Now, I mention that because that those two elements are crucial to developing your own interest as you grow up the resources to have access to, to pursuing your hobby, and the availability of being encouraged by whoever your, your growing up people are, your parents, basically. The holodeck solves one half of that equation perfectly because you don't have to worry about, oh, do I, where do I get the painting supplies, or where do I get, you know, the, 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 I, I need certain, I, I need acrylics, I want to try watercolor, I'd love to do some stuff with dyes and cloth and wax, you know, there's all this stuff you can do, but it's okay. You go on the holodeck, bam, problem solved. You have all those tools and supplies available. In fact, if you, if you're like, well, I'm not really feeling this acrylic, you could just switch to another paint type just like that on the holodeck. It's great. And, of course, this goes for acting as well. Let me explain this in a slightly different take. And I'm curious, honestly, of your thoughts on this. How many of you have tried acting at some point in your life? Probably in school. You know, school plays are a pretty big thing. And school theater, depending on the school, tends to be something that's pushed. I mean, when I was going to high school, for example, we had a huge theater department. That's when I really started getting into theater. Um, working on the acting, directing... Uh, lighting design and music sound designs <laughs> aspects. Oh, and camera. I actually did camera work too. I forgot about that. Uh, of, of this, the whole theater we had, which was fun and awesome and interesting. But I know I had this problem, which is funny because I'm a massive extrovert and other people had this problem too of getting, like, getting that foot in the door because it's like, uh, Right? I mean, even if you like interacting with other people, there's always that kind of about having to act in front of other people. And when you're not good at acting, and you know you're not good at acting, and you flub your lines and you screw up, right? And you're embarrassed, you're humiliated, well, just go on the holodeck. Because in the holodeck, you have the best of both worlds, for good and for bad. You are acting in front of people who can react to you because you've basically got the other characters set up as NPCs. 
but they're not going to judge you for screwing up badly. Or if they really do start, you know, if the computer's like, hang on, that's not what you're supposed to say, you can just freeze program and rewind a few lines, right? Try again. I just think that's a cool concept, and I wish we saw more of this kind of using the holodeck as a tool of establishing and developing learning and interests. But I digress. <clears throat> this episode was the first one to really use uh, several things, most notably the new models, the new big ol' four-foot model for the Enterprise, as well as the new Dideridex model, which would be used many times in the future. And this is the first time we see the Romulan scout ship, which would be used a few times in the future as well. And... Obviously, I'm watching the Blu-rays for this, but I actually bothered to pull up an old copy because I still have the DVDs uh, over in storage, so I pulled that out and looked at it. And even back on the DVD, you can kind of tell the quality difference. So that was a nice little touch and added a little bit of more, I suppose, believability to the overall scenario. I also liked the tension of the initial setup because this is one of those episodes that could work on its own, but works so much better in the wake of the enemy. In the enemy, there was this huge big deal about crossing into the neutral zone. Hey, don't go into the neutral zone. Blah, 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 blah. And then what we see is a Romulan scout ship racing away from a Romulan warbird, desperately trying to get away, and they're in the neutral zone, which is already like, hmm. And then they enter Federation territory, and it's like, okay. And all of that tension is just sort of automatically there. There's this wonderful scene where James Sloyan is awesome. Uh, it's every scene he's in. But I want you to do me a favor. Uh, if you're, if you watch this after me, or if you have watched this, so if you watch, if you watch this after this, or, oh god, I'm using my words wrong. Rewind. If you watch these after my ruminations, or if you don't watch these at all, I encourage you to rewatch this episode after listening to me and pay attention to James Sloyan's face. He's the one who plays Admiral Jarrock. He does a lot of little details that, as a director, I look at and I say, yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to do those little things. They're microscopic little things that add to the, the believability of the character and make so much sense, especially on second viewing, once you know all, everything that's going on, once you know that's Admiral Jarrock and everything that he's been through. Um, little gestures with his eyes or just kind of tight little expressions that only last for a second. Wonderful little details. I'm only going to mention uh, one towards the end of the episode, but it's it's good stuff across the board. And there's this great part, too, where Worf says, the Federation would never allow that, and then he just turns and says, then it is war we're talking about, isn't it? And simply the way he says that gets across everything about his motivations right there, that the entire point of this is not to you know, curtail the Romulans or to advance Federation people. It is simply to stop a war. One of Jerok's most interesting character traits, in my opinion, is that he is not a traitor. I know that that's arguable because a traitor is technically a political entity, and therefore, by political definitions, he is, in fact, a traitor. He is guilty of treason. But from a moralistic perspective, from the perspective of, let's say it what it is, reality, this is someone who is actually a fervent patriot of the Romulans, who has defected because of that patriotism, because he firmly believes that what the Romulan government and the Romulan supreme uh, leadership in terms of the military side of things are trying to do is wrong, and that he wants to try and make this better. He has this great line later, which I'll cover in more detail when we get there, with Picard, my daughter will grow up thinking her father is a traitor, but she will grow up. And that just sells it right there. 
so he blows up the scout ship. There's this nice little tidbit. In a lot of television, it would be very tempting, even I have done this before, and you know, plenty of people have done this, I'm sure, to have the comment like, well, at least, you know, Jordy turns, well, at least he left us a nice treat. You know, oh, gosh, this wonderful day. It would have been fantastic. It would have been typical if they had just blown up on the spot. But the fact that it takes a few more seconds to get there is actually kind of nice in a, in a weird sort of a way. They even call him out on it. He's like, what, wouldn't you have done the same thing? <laughs> I mean, really? So he directly references Galorndon Kor. Nice little reference there. He also kind of gives away just a little bit that he knows more than he should. Because despite his statement, I don't think the events of Galorndon Kor were widespread knowledge. I don't. I think that was something that was really only said in the upper echelons of command. And I think that Admiral Jarok would have been aware of that incident. Just like, you know, Commander Tomalak would be. Um, but I bring that up because this is something that I'll be mentioning as we go throughout TNG. There is a almost assuredly completely unintentional story thread that goes through Season 3 and Season 4 about the Romulans. And I, I, I guarantee with like 99% certainty it was not something they intended to happen. It just kind of naturally follows the course of events and kind of creates this subtext of the Romulans and their continuing efforts to subvert the Federation and establish greater political control over, over the, uh, the galaxy in general, uh, but the Beta Quadrant in particular. The idea here is... They had their issue with Galorndon Kor, and that was obviously some kind of initial prelude. Probably not to war, as I mentioned back in The Enemy, but definitely to something. They were beaten there, so they're like, okay, we're going to get a little bit more com complex with our next issue. And they go ahead and arrange this whole situation with one of their own. I mean, I feel like Admiral Jarok was just the next guy in line, because he can't tell me there aren't other Romulans who aren't questioning this, questioning the whole high command party line doctrine thing. That's how that usually works, right? And I'll talk about the party line thing a bit later, too. So Jarok, you know, defects, and they've got this whole situation ready to solidify things back home, and I'll talk about that later as well. But because of the Klingons, well, that doesn't work. Huh. Well, obviously the Romulans are going to have to kind of go in a new direction soon. So they start getting even more subversive, even more subtle and nuanced, and start working through other people and trying to, to deal with other people so that the Romulans themselves never even really show themselves, not until they've already won. And anybody who's seen TNG kind of knows where I'm going with this because this leads naturally into redemption. Now, I just want to address something really quick. Uh, yes, I do watch Sci-Fi Debris, and I've noticed he's mentioned the same theory as well. For reference, I didn't get the theory from him, though. Uh, this is a theory that me and my friends actually were talking about many, many years ago, uh, long before YouTube or the Internet was really that big of a thing. So I only mention that to, to, to get across the idea, no, I'm not aping Sci-Fi Debris. Um, this is just a natural progression of story flow that, that just made sense to me and made sense to my friends. Uh, Joel and Vincent as well, because this just makes sense, right? Anyways. Ah, uh, where was I? So, he references Golundin Core. He insults Worf and Klingon. I like him. <laughs> I love that little bit. They bring him in. He he can't... There's a couple of little nitpicks, like the fact that the computer apparently doesn't know how to do Romulan degrees. 
Now, the thing that weirds me out about that is the universal translator's a thing, right? So you'd think it would just be able to say, oh, okay, well, that's such and such in whatever degrees we have. Now, the argument here is that maybe they have no reference for that degree. So therefore, even though it's hearing, put it into such and such degrees, it doesn't know the measurement system and therefore can't do it. That makes sense. But that's not what the computer says. And I hate to get really nitpicky here, but this computer says this is programmed for Celsius only. You can't tell me every alien and every visiting dignitary and every random new, new people happens to use Celsius. We, it, just in the vengeance factor, we had the Akamarians come on board. Did they use Celsius? <laughs> right? My point is, it felt like a weird thing. Its, it's purpose is obvious. It's to make him feel even more isolated than before. But I feel like it's a little bit clumsy in its execution of that idea. Before I sound like I'm bashing this episode too much, I want to then praise something that happens in the very in the very same scene. He pulls out a little circular disc out of his boot, and he just looks at it, and ominous music plays. That is a nice touch. It's a full-on subversion. It is playing with your expectations, because we already have plenty of reason to mistrust the Romulans, and it's like, oh gosh, what's going on with this? Spoiler alert, that's what he uses to commit suicide later on. And of course it makes perfect sense that Jarok would have taken that. In case A, he didn't actually get away, so before the Romulans can take him back, and B, in case the Federation wasn't really that receptive. The fact that he just looks at that at that point, in my mind, shows that Jarok is already thinking about taking it. But he's like, no, no, I'll, I'll give it a few more tries. We'll see what we get out of this. <clears throat> there's this little tidbit where the computer... There's a lot of little touches they do well in this episode. There's this bit where the computer voice is on the bridge and then Picard goes into his ready room and the voice actually adjusts and shifts to follow him into that ready room. That's actually a really nice touch. And the kind of thing we don't see that often in Star Trek, uh, especially up, up until this point in time. Little touches like that really help this episode. There's another little tidbit. There's this one security... There's actually two, but there's this one main security guard, an ensign. He doesn't have any lines. And he's in... Oh, I think every scene, there's actually one I don't know off the top of my head, but he's in every except for possibly one scene that Jarok is in, just in the background, just standing there watching guard. Again, a nice touch, because of course he's there, because of course they have him under security detail. Why wouldn't they? It's something that doesn't necessarily need to be called out, but its inclusion adds to the believability of the episode. There's also another little point I want to mention here. At the 17 minute and 15 second point, uh, Picard, debating the situation, calls Worf in for security arrangements. That's it. He moves on. Um, so they go and they, they start analyzing the data from the chase. This is another one of my nitpicks of this episode. The, they have clear demonstrable evidence that the Dideridex was allowing the scout to get away. But this is basically never brought up again until the very end of the episode. This is something that it would have been nice to just smack Jarok in the face with. Like, hey, they let you go. What? Why would they let me go? I have knowledge of this stuff. You know, and they obviously the reason they don't discuss this is because they could have cracked the mystery earlier and not had all of the drama and suspense of the final points of the episode. But my point is, as a writer, I would have ejected that scene entirely. I would have just tossed it out the window. Because... It's too obvious of proof. It's the biggest point of proof by far that this is all a charade. Despite all of the sincerity of Jarok, and he is very sincere, 
credit again to James Sloyan's acting, despite all of the information he is willing to finally relent to giving when it gets to the point where he's finally willing to do that, despite him opening up about who he is and all that stuff, all of that flies in the face of the fact that they let him go, and they have demonstrable proof of that. I would have ejected that scene entirely, maybe add back in the bits of the interrogation scene that were cut, because it not only doesn't add anything to the episode, it actively detracts from it. Anyways... <clears throat> So, uh, cut forward a little bit more. Uh, there's this great, great bit where Picard says, Data, I want you to keep a record of, what, of the, the events of these couple days. That's awesome. I, I, I know that you don't need to say that every time, but given the gravity of what's going on here, it makes so much sense that Picard would want a neutral observer, an impassionate observer, to literally keep a historical record of these events. Just in case. And Data's perfect for that. I, I know that sounds like a weird thing to praise, but I love the idea that Data himself has, after this point, just kind of starts keeping a record going forward. Um, I, I've always had the personal headcanon that the events of Data's day were a sort of a side growth of this original idea of Data kind of keeping a record of the events of his life for historical purposes. I mean, he's on the Enterprise, for God's sakes. He's on the cutting edge of history many times. And while Data's day was all about more ground-to-earth stuff, you, you, you can't tell me Data wouldn't keep track of everything, right? And yes, I know they mention um, uh, Bruce Maddox in Data's day as well as one of the reasons for that. But I stand by my point, because I think it's a cool idea. Anyways... So they have the interrogation scene between Riker, Troy, and Jerrock. It is a damn shame that scene was cut short, because I feel like they did some good stuff with it. And the scene itself, as presented, is almost filler. It's just Jerrock being like, Ah, stop asking me, I'm not going to give you information. Go away. Go away. Like, like, we've kind of already covered this. And then the scene just ends abruptly, because, because it was cut for time. So, Jordy... Oh, hang on. One quick thing. There's this one little bit at the 21 minute and 50 second mark where Picard is about to send the probe out. And uh, so Picard... And Worf says, excuse me, they're Klingon security channels on it. Worf, go handle it in room B. And then he starts talking about the probe. So, that leaves us with a great conversation between Jordy and Data. I love this conversation because, to me, it is a great way to explain the concept of gut feeling or instinct, both of which are illogical concepts, to an android who has neither. Because, as Jordy puts it, and I agree with this, the entire purpose of gut instinct is to fill in the blanks when we lack information. If we make a choice based purely on the information we have, because we have all the information available, then we're probably going to make a choice predominantly logical. Now, I know, obviously, emotions can get in the way of that as well, but my point being, we can judge and decide things when we know all the information. It's one of the hardest things to accept for us as viewers and fans of fiction, especially when discussing and analyzing these works, because we know things the characters don't. So we can look at someone and say, well, that's stupid. But we don't know what they knew, which is to say we actually know more than they knew in character at the time. It's also what leads to the concept of the armchair general. Oh, obviously you should have just done this. But again, the advantages of hindsight and the information that the person in character didn't have at the time. I myself tip over this a little bit sometimes because, of course I do, I'm an idiot, and I, I screw up just like anyone else does. But 
I mention this because I love this method of explanation. What do you do, Data, if you don't know everything? If you don't have the truth accessible to you? And then, of course, they get that wonderful uh, bit of information where they find the cloaked probe, which we now know in the future is a cloaked probe, which is like, oh, shoot, there's something there. Which brings me to a weird question. Obviously, the Romulans were pretty committed to this particular deception. Why not plonk down a generator and a building with a cloaking device on it, on the planet? Why not just do that? That would have added so much more additional credence to the situation, especially since, as Data points out, a cloaked building would be much more visible and much easier detected. It would have completely sold them on the idea that it's there. As weird as this may sound, I feel like that in character the Romulans kind of gave away their hand way too early and way too often, notably with the letting the scout get away problem, but also with the fact that they didn't commit to this deception on uh, Nintaka 3 or whatever the hell the name of the planet was. So, Data's on, Data's an intent forward, just staring at Jerok. Jerok's response is aggravated. Can I presume that you do not, ever seen a Romulan? Oh no, you'd be incorrect. Then why do you violate my privacy? And then Data says, oh, I'm trying to determine my gut. And based on his reaction, Jerok deduces he's the android. Again, pay attention to Sloyan's face. I know I said I only cut comment on it one more time, but I got to comment on it here as well. Because you just see his mood warm. Or more accurately, I would say it's more like he unclenches. You can just see how uncomfortable and how alien all of this feels to him. Like he is completely in a situation he does not want to be in and that he actively despises. Something that will be repeated by Garrick over on DS9, actually, in uh, The Wire, I believe is the name of the episode. I could be wrong about that. Uh, in fact, we've covered that episode already by your perspective. I haven't actually covered that episode yet because I'm doing the TNG first, then we'll do DS9. Point being, you look at that, and he just is like, ah, finally someone I don't have to pretend to. Finally someone I don't have to be worried about judging me. It's a cold, logical android. And he warms to him almost immediately. And Data is so ruthlessly honest with him that it actually seems to make Jerok feel more comfortable. And I like that. I like the rapport that Data and that Jerok have in their scenes together. There's also this great part where, uh, you know, he flat out admits, you know, I, I can't have the booze I want. I can't have the stars I want. I can't even go home again. You know, I have seen, and again, Sloyan just sells this. I have seen a hundred worlds, but nothing matched the raw beauty possessed by Romulus. And, Data says, well, and as a kindness, Data offers him the usage of the holodeck to recreate Romulus. And that's actually really cool and kind of Data. And of course, it is again that honesty and that desire to reach out to him that makes Jerok realize that he needs to reach back. And, and this is the important part, really, I'm trying to think how to phrase this because this is kind of a weird thing. It is the fake nature of the Romulus projection that finally hammers in the reality of what he's done. Jerok knew this walking into this. Of course he did. He's not stupid. He knew. He had the letter. You can't tell me he didn't have that letter already penned. He had the suicide chip. But as anyone will tell you, there's a difference between intellectually knowing something and having it really sink in. Um, to use a personal example, I knew my grandmother had died because I got that phone call. 
and I listened to my, my you know my aunt telling me about what happened and how they found her and you know the funeral arrangements which I wasn't actually able to attend unfortunately I've never attended a funeral despite how many members of my family have died by now but it took until a little while later a few weeks on actually when I was I was doing something with with a quilt and I was uh, that sounds weird. <laughs> I was folding up the quilt to put it into storage. I'll just go ahead and be honest about it because I was just sorting through my room. And I realized that that was the quilt that she had made and given me. And I looked at it for a moment, and that was the moment that it actually sank in for me, that I realized that she was gone. And that's when it really hit me, and that's when I really reacted to the situation. Even though I intellectually knew it for weeks at that point, it hadn't fully been processed. And I feel like that's what happens here with Jerok. It finally processes for him that, yes, I am gone. I have already put everything on the table. It is time to commit. So he says, Picard, you know, I, I am, I am Jerok. I am Admiral Jerok. And then there's the scene between Picard and Jerok. I have nothing but gushing about this scene. It is perfection. And I mean that with total sincerity. Every little movement, every tone, every little directing, it, it's just absolutely flawless. There's even, there's so many great little bits. My personal favorite is when Jerox starts talking about children. And Picard's like, yes, this is all very fascinating. And Jerox's like, and he just holds up a hand. He's like, hey, give me, I'm going somewhere with this, Picard. Give me a moment. Let me explain. And he talks about Tiaru. Now, I know you're thinking, who the hell's Tiaru? Tiaru Jerok is Jerok's daughter. Now, I know that not everyone agrees that Star Trek Online is canon. However, I do like the idea that, given what happens with Tiaru Jerok over in STO, that she does finally get his letter and that he is vindicated, at least in, you know, in hindsight, with her and with the Romulan people in general. It adds a bit more satisfaction to me personally, given the overall tragedy of Jerok's story. Anyways. <clears throat> so the two of them talking together are just amazing. And Jerok opens up about war. And I have this note here that says, who knows the price of war better than someone who has fought it? Now, I don't know how true this is in real life, but I know several people in the military who have given the comment before that, you know, because half my family's from the military, have given the comment that more often than not, the generals and the admirals are the ones who want to avoid war, whereas it is more usually more the politicians and the senators or congressmen or uh, uh, members of the House or members of the parliament or whatever that are more inclined towards war. Because the military heads know war, and the politicians do not. I, don't, I, don't, I know that's kind of a generic statement, and obviously does not apply in every situation. But it's, I've always been left with that impression that people who have fought war understand war better, and thus, by logical discourse, might be less inclined towards war in the future. So... There's this great bit where Picard goes into the ready room, and Patrick Stewart, as ever, is amazing. He has this wonderful tone of regret and grimness to his voice, where he admits that Jarok has shared all of this intel and all of this information, and he's going to be coordinating with you, Jordy, and he's going to be coordinating with you, uh, Riker and Worf, and everyone else in order to try and make this happen. Side note. 
given how much it's been a plot point that we know very little about the Romulans, up till this point, actually, I like to think personally that a huge amount of the information the Federation has about the Romulans comes from Admiral Jarok. Because if you pay attention, in future episodes, they know more about how the Romulan's cloak works, more about how the Romulan mind control technique works, more about how the Romulan po- political infrastructure operates, etc., etc. And thus, they have a great more ability to deal with the Romulans. And that's a recurring trend in basically every Romulan episode henceforth. Again, pure headcanon, but I like to think that that's because of what Jarok shared with them in this episode, when he fully committed to saying... Here's what I got. Stop this war from happening. <laughs> now, of course... Oh, and so so Picard shares with this information, and I love that regret in his tone. Because that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Picard would probably... As weird as it sounds, Picard probably would have preferred if Jarek was just a spy. If he was just some plant who was sent here who was false and was giving them false information, and there is no issue and there is no war... And which is funny, because he kind of gets his wish. It is a trick. That's the great irony of this episode. It is a trick. It's just not a trick on Jerox's part. This is one of the reasons why I wish they'd smoothed over a couple little bumps in the story, because that payoff is fantastic. 30 minutes. 30 minutes the episode spends building up this point until they finally commit, we're going to go into the neutral zone, we're going to violate the treaty, and we, the audience, thanks to this episode and previous episodes, know the impact and, and strength of that decision. So we're, we're committing to this. And then it's quiet. The music stops for, for several, several minutes as they're like, okay, what are they? Well, it looks like there's some probe orbiting it and cloak. Anything on the surface? Nope. Could they cloak it? No, that'd be visible. Could they have moved it? No, that would be visible too. There's nothing here, Admiral. This is the other moment I wanted to mention James Sloyan's visible acting. The way he says, you know, he's looking, he's got this shock when they say, there's nothing here. Could they have, and then Picard flat out says, could they have fed you information? And Jarek says, no. And the, I, I'm not doing it because I'm not a good actor. But the, the way he says no the first time, you can just tell what's going through his mind is, no, like horror, like dread. It was all for nothing. And that reality is so horrible that he can't take it. And his next statement is, no, that's impossible. Which he says with a lot more conviction and a totally different tone. Because denial has taken over full front there. The first no is the realization. The second no is denial of the truth. This cannot be true. I cannot have done it all for nothing. A couple interesting points here. So obviously it was a trick. Tomalak shows up. Yay, Tomalak, two of four. Um, they do a really good visual trick where they've actually got... So what they did was they had the camera... I can't do it perfectly, you know, like over here, so that Tomalak is talking this way while the camera's filming him this way. Now, that sounds like a weird choice, and in fact, logically, it probably shouldn't work that way, but it creates a wonderful visual illusion because that's roughly where the camera is for Picard, who is over there against his camera which is pointing that way. So we basically, for this scene, we've got one camera facing this way for Tomalak and one facing at that diagonal for Picard, and thus the two of them, even though neither of them are looking at their respective cameras, are effectively talking to each other. Even though this is a view screen and it shouldn't work that way, it is a wonderful visual uh, illusion. Like I said, it's, it's a trick. <laughs> so <clears throat> apparently, and this is the interesting one, apparently the Romulans were okay with provoking a war with this action. 
But I mention that because it's entirely feasible that they wouldn't have. Obviously, Star Trek doesn't get too much into politics. And if I could be so bold, I think that is to the detriment of the show. Uh, I, I don't mean we need to talk about, okay, in line B on subcommittee section 5, we've got, no, I don't, I don't mean that. That's bureaucracy. I mean politics. I mean the galactic community, which I've talked about many times when discussing Star Trek. I'll, here in real life, if, oh, I don't know, uh, Prussia and France wanted to go to war with each other, but for for their own particular reasons, neither of them wants to be the aggressor in that war if they can avoid it, because that basically hurts them politically. It it makes it more likely that the the European community in general is going to support the other side, and it means that they will have less support less support on their side, right? I mean that just makes sense because that's the nature of existing in a a dense political scenario, which is what the galactic community is as of this point in Star Trek. There are many different powers out there, ignoring the big three. So it makes perfect sense to me that the Romulans would not want to be the aggressors in a war, that they basically lured the Enterprise here and are more than willing to destroy it and scavenge it and all that fun stuff. But I have a thought, and I want to share it. And this is, this is headcanon, but it ties in with the enemy. One of the things I felt most strongly about the enemy is that the Romulans had this whole pro-Romulan thing not really for the Federation's sake, but for the Romulan's sake, that they were pushing the propaganda angle in order to ensure subservience amongst their own people. That also kind of comes up in this episode. Think about this logically for a moment. Do the Romulans benefit from managing to capture the, the Enterprise and dissect it for information? Of course they do. Tomalak even flat out says, we will take you as a prisoner of war. However, Tomalak flat out admits he does not believe Picard will surrender to this. And you can't tell me the Romulan command was counting on that either. Rather, the most likely outcome is the Enterprise will resist and then be destroyed. And that will be the end of it because this was an acceptable incident, politically speaking. The Enterprise violated the border, right? So what's the benefit of this entire exercise? Tomalak gives away the answer very clearly. He says, we will, we will ho hoist up the hulk of the Enterprise in the central city, a capital city of Romulus. And it will be a symbol to everyone. And he mentions, ah, it'll be a symbol to our enemies. But more importantly, a symbol to, to our own people to ensure that they remain loyal, to ensure that any future traitors or treasonous thoughts will be quelled by this vision of what happened when the great Admiral Jerok went traitor. I think this is an internecine affair more than anything else. Now, it's not like they don't get other possible benefits out of that. It's possible they might take the Enterprise intact. They could certainly learn something from dissecting it, even if they don't. They could probably you know, use the, uh, the prisoners of war as you know, negotiating tools. But I think that was the core point of all of this, to suppress internal rebellion. I especially think this because this is also going to be a recurring trend of the Romulan story, most strongly pointed up in unification. Because it just makes sense. I mean, even Enterprise actually touched on this point, even though that was centuries before... A century? A little over a century before this. The, uh, you know, I, I once questioned the policy of infinite expansion. You remember that little tidbit? Because I do. That says so much about how messed up the internal affairs are of the Romulans. And... I guess that's all I have to say about that. Um, I 
So then Picard call. There's this wonderful little tidbit which I've actually skipped over, where the Romulans are there, and Mr. Worf says, "Sir," and then Picard says, "Not yet, Mr. Worf. This is just a tap on the shoulder." Now, I like that because that is the third and final bit of foreshadowing to the Klingons showing up. The Klingons showing up was a wonderful reveal, and I will freely admit I didn't catch it as a kid. In fact, I even missed some of the specific points, even knowing they were there when I first rewatched this for the show. Side note, I, I watch these episodes, I sit here, I'm you know, taking notes, I'm jotting down, I've got full analysis mode on. Uh, it's a little stressful. But every now and again, I like to watch these episodes just for fun. And I had just finished uh, Vengeance Factor, I believe, whatever the last episode was. And I was just, I was mentally exhausted. But I wanted to watch The Defector. So I just watched it. I just put it up on the side while I was getting some editing work done and had it up there on the side. So I actually watched The Defector twice for this rumination. Anyways, that first time when I was just watching it off to the side, I actually missed pretty much all of the foreshadowing of this. But there are three times. Once at 1715, where he calls Worf in. Once at 2150, when there's a Klingon security call or whatever. And once right at the conclusion when Worf says, Sir, and Picard's like, not yet. I mention that because that is another reason why I mentioned that this script is so tightly written. Because this was obviously planned out in advance that the Klingons would be able to, to successfully pull them out of the fire that they're in the, in this situation. Now, I have no idea what the hell those birds of prey are. They're gargantuan for some reason, and there's only three of them. And I mean, three birds plus a galaxy against two Dideridex. I'd probably still vote for the Dideridexes there. The pro this is one of the problems that even though season three is obviously doing better and is being better presented and has more support and blah, 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 I really feel like this. if this exact scene had happened much later in Star Trek's history when budget stopped being a concern, that we wouldn't see three Klingon bird of praise. We would see like a Katinga, or not a Katinga, excuse me, a, a, a Vorta. Maybe two Vortas and like five birds of prey, right? To better sell the nature of the situation. Like, okay, so we have evened out the score. You have two big old capital ships. We have one big old capital ship, two medium cruisers, and five... Uh, you know, attack destroyers. What's it going to be? And that then sells the idea that they're more evenly matched. You know, Tomalak flat out says, you know, you will die in our folly too. I also like how Tomalak gives that little smile and nod as he's been defeated. I look forward to our next meeting. I get the impression, although I have no evidence of this, that Tomalak always had a little bit of respect for Picard in particular, for the fact that Picard was able to outmaneuver him without being aggravating about it. I, I, I've always gotten that impression, that worthy opponent kind of a vibe there. This, God, this is such a great episode. I mean, I watched it twice for this rumination. Well, I mean, technically one just for fun, but you get my point. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on it, and I hope to see you guys next time.